In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Beloved children of God, we are dealing with great and lofty things today as we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Trinity. We are praising and glorifying the holy name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name into which you were baptized. And so we glorify and praise this name every day, and we do so also especially on Sunday when we confess the Creed and sing our praises to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But today we have spoken the Athanasian Creed, named after that illustrious and noble and pious man of God, Athanasius of Alexandria, who opposed Arianism, the teaching that Jesus is not true God, and suffered much, exiled five times to confess it. And though the words of this longest of our creeds may seem difficult for you to understand, the truth is very simple. It's the simple truth that we teach the children to say when we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. There is only one God, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one is completely God, not a part of God. And each one is of one essence or being or substance with the others. There are not three gods. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is uncreated. The Father is uncreated, but he begets the Son. The Son is begotten or born from the Father from eternity. And the Holy Spirit proceeds or goes forth from the Father and the Son in eternity. And in this unity of the three persons, none is before or after the other, but all are co-eternal and equal in all things. And so, as we say, we worship the Trinity, the threeness in unity and the unity in substance. But we come to know this truly, to believe it truly, not because we are intellectuals who can make the proper distinctions, distinctions are important, but we learn it only as little children and fools in the world. When we are dealing with the great and lofty articles of the Christian faith, the great mysteries of the faith, then it is important we do well to remember St. Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And then remember what Jesus said to the Father in his prayer in Matthew 11. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. And when the disciples asked Jesus who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, amen, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So, we can't approach this great and lofty article of our faith, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, with anything but humility. 
with fear and with simplicity of heart. Most of all, we approach this mystery with faith in the words of Jesus. Since we can't approach the Most Holy Trinity, at whose sight Isaiah said, Woe is me, with anything else except faith. Faith is the highest worship of God because it lets God be God and not what we imagine him to be. And so that we might today properly believe in and confess the most holy trinity, let us with humble and sincere hearts pray the God of comfort and Father of all mercies that he would open our poor hearts and minds to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Let us pray. O Holy Trinity, to whom I all things owe, thine image graciously within my heart bestow. Choose me, the weak and lowly, to be thy temple holy, where praise shall rise unending for grace so condescending. O heavenly bliss thine own to be, O Holy Trinity. Amen. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Why did he come to Jesus by night? He came by night because he was still walking in darkness. He was known as a leader of the Jews, and he was a Pharisee. And he didn't want the Pharisees to see him talking with Jesus. The Pharisees, as you know, they guarded the law of God with zeal to the letter. They believed the scriptures were the inspired word of God, and they conformed their lives to the laws and precepts of Moses. But they had this problem. They trusted in their own understanding and in their own good works. And we see that throughout Jesus' interactions with them in the Gospels. But Nicodemus had this, that he could not deny that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. He had seen the signs that Jesus did. No one can do signs like these that you are doing unless God is with him. And so even if Nicodemus was still afraid of what his fellow Pharisees might think of him for consorting with this Jesus, who wasn't impressed with the Pharisees' righteousness, yet he was drawn by the power of Jesus. And this is the beginning. This is what, as far as people can go with their own natural reason. Always remember that everybody is worshiping a God. Everybody is. The atheist, the person who says there is no God, is worshiping a God. Now, we learn in our catechism, whatever you fear, love, and trust in the most is your God. And so even if people says there is, see people say there is no God, yet you see that person's affections, his desires, his fears, and his reliance on certain things. He is giving his soul to things as one would give it to God, and therefore, even if he doesn't know it, he is worshiping a God. And also we see that God has made us to know him. And even though we are corrupted by sin, we can still figure certain things out. Like, it's pretty ridiculous to say that we just randomly got here so that we're able to talk with each other and love and hate and think about good and evil or that we can see each other and procreate and jump up and down with joy and crouch down with with, with fear and weep because things are sad. That is not the result of randomness. 
we see in the intricacies of creation that there is a wise designer, a creator, a builder, and that he is powerful and upholds everything. We know also that he is good in some regard because, look, I eat the apple and it sustains me. I kiss my wife and she loves me. I look at my children and they make me happy. Anybody can figure this stuff out, and you see it in cultures all throughout the world, that they know there is a God, and they know that he is good and wise and powerful, but the problem is, is they don't know what he thinks about them. And that is really what the true God is. God is God, no matter what you make of him. God is uncreated. But it depends on what you believe God is, who you believe God is, what your faith is. Everybody has faith in some God. Everybody thinks something about God. The question is, is what your faith is. And that's what Nicodemus needs to learn. It was something he couldn't wrap his mind around. Who is this man who can change water into wine and heal the sick? He's got to be from God. And so he speaks on, the other, on behalf of the other Pharisees. We know. We know you're a teacher sent from God. The miracles had done their job. The purpose of miracles has always been to draw people to the truth of the gospel. That's why when we defend the Christian faith, we always say, but Jesus rose from the dead. What are you going to do with that? So that they might listen to Jesus. Nicodemus calls Jesus a teacher. And so Jesus accepts that title and teaches Nicodemus proud, confused Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night. And Jesus teaches and he sheds light. And he ignores his compliment and says, Amen, amen, I tell you the truth. I say to you, anyone who is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first thing we need to know about the Holy Trinity and it's about us. We can't know him on our own. We can't know what he thinks about us. Our first birth isn't good enough. We must be born again. We can't see God's kingdom. We can't recognize God ruling over us unless we become completely different people than we are by nature. We need to change in order to know God. And that is what the prophets taught. I'm going to give you a barrage of how, of how the Bible teaches what we are by nature. Okay, so that you are protected from, from, for example, that church right there behind us, the Church of Christ, which denies original sin. All right, they deny original sin. Now listen to this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Moses. And then he repeats this after the flood, so that people don't think, oh, it's just the people before the flood in Genesis 8. The imagination, that is the thoughts of man's heart, is evil from his childhood. David teaches this in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And you are familiar with the verse in Psalm 51 that David says, Surely I was brought forth or born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. 
And Isaiah teaches this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Jeremiah teaches this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is the teaching of all scripture. That our first birth isn't good enough. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. That's why he says to me, says to him a little bit later, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And the apostles, of course, repeat this truth that Jesus teaches. We know this passage that you all learn in confirmation. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them, for they are foolishness to him. They are foolishness to him. That's like Nicodemus. How can, these, how can a man be born again? Can he climb into his mother's womb and be born again? It's foolishness to him. He doesn't want to hear that, as Paul says, he's dead in his sins and trespasses until Christ makes him alive. How can you see the kingdom of God when you're dead? Nicodemus calls a teacher, and so Jesus teaches him that he must be born again. He teaches him. What does he teach him first? He teaches him that he isn't good enough. Compare this to what you see. I remember when I used to be on Facebook. Those sad times. When I used to be there, I would see these inspirational quotes from people who, you know, I thought were Christians, even Lutherans. And they'd be like, believe in yourself. You're good enough the way you are. All these other things. These are sayings that you get from people who are looking for their approval from the world. They think that their value comes from the world, and so they need to be good enough. But God, Jesus, the first thing he teaches Nicodemus is you're not good enough. You must be born again. What's wrong with my old birth? What's wrong with who I am? This is why many are offended at Jesus. Repentance is not just merely changing a few bad habits. It's recognizing who we are. It doesn't matter who you are. Nicodemus, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. Your reason, your intellect, not good enough. Your willpower, not good enough. Your good works, they're not even good. Your body and soul, everything needs to be changed and saved. It doesn't matter how you appear to the world or to yourself. Jesus says that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you become a completely different person from what you are by nature, you will not see God ruling in his kingdom. It will look like foolishness to you. You won't see the nature of God. And so God doesn't reveal his kingdom and his rule to anyone who does not know that his old birth isn't good enough. In other words, he doesn't show himself for who he is, truly, except to those who know that they are real sinners who have rebelled against the one who made them and who lack the love that God created them to have for him and for their neighbor. Now, people object to this. They say, look, I mean, look at the Gentile philosophers and the religions of the world. They all have something in common. They know that God, there is a God, or a God is powerful, and they sometimes figure out that he created them and that he's good and wise and omniscient and everywhere. But isn't this God? I had a philosophy professor uh, several years back who said that, that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all worship the same God. 
They all believe he's almighty, they all believe he's omniscient, that he knows everything, and that he's good. And so I said, hey, does your car have wheels? Does it have a steering wheel? Does it have a seat? We must have the same car. Isn't it interesting? Just because you know that there is a God doesn't mean you know the true God. Of course there is. Now who is he? Is he what you imagine him to be? Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. And there are not three uncreated, but one uncreated. You don't create him. You don't make him. He shows himself to you. We can figure stuff out about God, but it doesn't mean that we know God. The minute that we learn that God is, we change who God is. The imagination, the thoughts of our hearts are corrupt. This happens all the time. I told you the story a few weeks ago about how my dad told me that Jesus, around the dinner table, Jesus is with us. And that got my mind turning. And I said, you mean that he's with us in spirit? My dad said, no. There's only one Jesus, and he's true God and true man. You see, my reason immediately changed Jesus into something that I could understand. That's what reason does. That's what, why? Because we're corrupt. So we need to know that we're corrupt. We need to know that our old birth, our mind, our body, our desires, our will, isn't good enough. And we can't forget this either, who we are by nature. Because otherwise, we simply won't let God be God. Because we want to be God. As the devil promised us we would be, you will be like God. We don't want to let God be God. So in any way that those who do not know Christ know God, it is only insufficient and not good enough, but their knowledge is wrong. They imagine him to be something that he's not. You could make him into idols of wood and stone and metal and change them into animals and men. Or whether you make him into some grand principle of goodness or whether you imagine he is just and righteous, which he is, they don't truly know what he thinks about them. And so they don't truly know him. They change him into a God whose love and favor can be bought with good works. We can have peace because we're good. And we're better than those people over there. We change him into somebody who gives us the pleasures we want. And that's why there have been Venuses since the beginning. And there have been Marses and Jupiters and all sorts of things. But the one thing that people don't do by nature is they don't approach God as little children, as sinners in need of a savior, but as if their old birth is good enough. As if their own understanding can figure him out. But the imagination, the thinking of our hearts, is corrupt from birth, deceitful above all things. And that is what Nicodemus needed to learn. That's why Jesus tells him, you must be born again. He interprets Jesus' words to mean being physically born of a mother. He's still in darkness. It's foolishness to him. And so Jesus explains what it means to be born again. The means by which Nicodemus would be born again. Amen, amen, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about baptism. Baptism is water joined with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit joins the water with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is always with his Word. And Jesus is specifically warning Nicodemus about rejecting the baptism of John. 
If you remember, the Pharisees had rejected the baptism of John. John preached the same thing Jesus preached. Remember, when the Pharisees came to be baptized by John, you will remember John's not-so-friendly words. Listen to this. This is why John got his head cut off, right? He talked like this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. John specifically attacks the notion that Pharisees can rely on their physical birth, their descent from Abraham. God's able to raise up children to Abraham from stones. Their old birth isn't good enough. John preached that, and Jesus repeats it. He defends John's teaching, because it's the teaching of the Bible. And therefore, baptism is a new birth that gives the new birth, a birth that cleanses our old birth. The birth is coming to faith. The birth is coming to faith, and the birth is effected and given by means of water and the Spirit. It is a baptism of repentance for the remission, the forgiveness of sins, as John called it, and as Jesus calls it, and the apostles call it. In other words, you need it. It's not just some outward thing you do. You need a new birth. You recognize your sin, you repent, and you believe what God gives you in this birth, or in this bath. So it is always in knowing God that we are born again. We cannot approach God thinking that we don't need to repent, that we've just done okay, there is no God except an idol for everyone who tries to come to God without seeing his need for the new birth that God has given to us. Guys, this is why I am so adamant about baptism and why I teach it so often. And I have a class every year on what baptism is, and I'll keep doing that. Why does the devil want to attack baptism so much? It's always puzzled me. For years, I thought, this, I guess the devil doesn't like water. Right? Or something like that. I don't know. What do they have against water? And then I found that they don't want what baptism teaches. They don't want to hear again and again every day when we approach our baptism, no, you don't belong to sin. You belong to me. And this is what proves it. Not what you do. That birth doesn't work. This new birth that I give you and only I give to you, only I can teach you who I am. We worship the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, when, we reveal, when he reveals himself to us in our baptism. We begin with repentance. This isn't a one-time event. The baptism is always true. It's a one-time event. But it is always the truth of the matter that we come to our baptism in repentance. Jesus teaches us to listen to his word and to receive what he has to give. When we rely on our natural abilities and powers and intellect, we're not relying on the true God. Jesus is a teacher sent from God to give us the new birth, to give us a new heart and spirit by means of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Listen again to these beautiful words of Ezekiel, which I think I've read the last three Sundays, but they're so good. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. That is, from you believing in and relying on false gods. That's what baptism does. 
It takes away the false gods and it gives you the true God. And yet I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will put my spirit within you. You see here that baptism, the water with the spirit, is the means by which God gives you the new birth. Gives you a new heart and new spirit. Makes you born again. This is what St. John teaches. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So we are not born again by a decision or something we do. We are born again through faith in the promise, in our baptism. And it is in recognizing this truth that we come to know God. You will never convince your friend to know God, even if you convince him that there is a God, unless your friend recognizes that he needs a new birth. He only reveals himself to babes. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We do not learn to worship the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity by simply memorizing formulas, not repeat after me theology. We learn to know God, the one who made us, to enter into his kingdom and see his rule over all things by listening to him. Just as you hear the sound of the wind and don't know where it came from or where it is going, So the only power that God wants us to look for, for our salvation, to know that we are children of God, born of the Spirit, the only means by which he teaches us to see and enter the kingdom of God is through his word. And that's why we're here today. We're here to learn and know God again. As we already know him, but we need to know him more. From his word. Faith is created by the word and faith is grows by the word and faith desires the word. God changes our hearts. He shows us how we do not know him when we do not repent of our sins. But when we let God be God, when he says you are a sinner and we say amen, you are right. I am a sinner. Who you are is good and true and who I am is bad. We let God be God. We don't say, no, God does allow this. God does allow this. I can handle God. I can reason it out. I can make an excuse. We don't do that. We do not know God when we excuse and practice unrighteousness, when we think that our minds and our bodies are free without Him. We do not see God ruling when we think we are ruling. We do not see God's kingdom when we think we are kings of our own destiny and rulers of our own lives. We do not see God when we see ourselves as God. The Psalms teach us all the gods of the nations are idols. They are what we have feared more than God, more than... We have feared disease and loss of health and money, what the world thinks of us. That We've feared that. Our idols are what we have loved and desired more than God. Our freedom to do as we please, as if it is freedom. Our honor and reputation in this dying world. Our pleasures, our wealth, our work that is so important. But our gods, the things we have loved more than God, are not God. And no matter what we think, the gods that we invent to improve, to approve of us loving these things more than God are not true gods. They are a result of our trusting in what we can see, what we think, what we can do. God is not someone we gain by doing anything. God is God regardless of what we think or do, but we must know him as the God he is. And that does not happen when we figure him out. When we add up all of his attributes and say omnipotence plus omniscience and omnibenevolence and omnipresence equals God. That's not how you think of God. That's not how you know him. 
He's not, a, he's not the result of a logical syllogism or a mathematical equation. You can't deduce God. The minute you've done it, you've created an idol. No. God is not a God we need to placate with our good works. We can stave off and tame. He's not a God we can fashion. He is the God who gives us his righteousness freely. He is not the God we need to ascend into heaven with our minds and thoughts to figure out and find. He is the Son of Man who came down from heaven and was in heaven and on the earth at the same time then and still is with us today. He came so that those who were bitten with the venom of the old evil snake might look up to him, lifted up on the cross, and be saved from the devil's lie that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Came so that when we recognize that we have not known good, that we have known evil. When we recognize that our old life, our birth, first birth, who we are without God is not good enough for God, we might believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is good enough for God in our place for us. He came as the Son of God and became the Son of Man in humility. One person taking our humanity into himself, into God, and in his holy body, bearing the sin of the world, so that the Holy Spirit might turn us away from our old birth, away from our dying selves, away from our foolish wisdom, and all these gods that haven't helped us. Turn us away from all that, to see by faith Christ dying for us on the cross, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is the knowledge of God, and that is the knowledge of God that's given to you every day in your baptism. Every single day you have that. You come to the Father in the Son by the Holy Spirit. You know that God is not the imagination of your heart, some idol you choose, some judge you can flatter or make excuses in front of. No, but He is the God who, when He had a right to be angry with you for rebelling against Him and ignoring Him and rejecting His love for loves that have faded and fled from you, He still loved you and wanted you and gave his dearest treasure. He sent his son, whom he had loved from eternity, not to condemn you, but to save you. He sent his son to teach you to know him for who he really is. And so we repent. We repent. We examine our lives and we say amen to God. We don't try to tame him. We don't make God into somebody who approves of what is obviously wrong. We say to God, you are right to call us sinners, to say that we aren't good enough, that we need to be born again to see your kingdom. We don't excuse our sin as if God would ever excuse what is evil. We let God be God. And we listen to a long sermon, too. It's all right. We let God talk to us. We let him condemn sin 
Because he's not condemning sin to condemn you. He did not send his world, his son into the world to condemn the world, or to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. But we let God be God when we believe that his only son, who is one God with the Father, has truly taken all of the guilt, all of the evil, the punishment, curse, death, fear, and power of our sin away from us and onto himself. So that God does not see it on us. So that there is nothing between us and God but peace and complete and perfect righteousness in Christ our crucified and risen Lord. There we see God. You cannot see God apart from that cross. There is no God but the man crucified on the cross. It's like that Lutheran satire skit where you got a Muslim and a Christian standing below a cross. And the title is, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And the Christian says, points to the cross and says to the Muslim, Hey, that's the God I worship. Is that the God you worship? And the Muslim says, No. There is your God. He is the one who meets you when you need him. And you feel that he would be far away from you, but the God that you imagine would reject you because of your many sins is not the true God. The true God is our Lord Jesus Christ, who sends his Holy Spirit to you to teach you to believe and confess the Father in the Son. He teaches you in your baptism that you are a sinner saved by the blood of the Lamb. We are buried with Christ into death through baptism so that his death for sin is our death to sin. His resurrection from sin and death is our resurrection from sin and death to live a new life. Sin doesn't define us, God does. All that is Christ's is ours, and we are his. And all that is Christ's is the Father's. And the Holy Spirit gives us the Father in the Son, and gives us to the Father in the Son. Oh, blessed Holy Trinity. What a beautiful image. To have that on us. It is a status, it is a relationship. How does God think about you is more important than anything else, any other question you have in your life. And to know that he thinks this way about you, that he regards you as his own dear child and holy and righteous and doesn't deal with you according to your sins, promises you eternal life with him. That is beautiful. That is the image of God restored to us again so that we look like God, we reflect him by faith in Jesus. We are baptized into this one name, into this one faith, to claim only one Lord, not three lords, only one God, not three gods. One uncreated God, not a God whom we create. One Almighty whose power is shown chiefly in showing mercy and pity to us poor sinners. It is this truth that we praise God for today. And this is the last of festivals. Now we're entering into the second semester of the church year. And it's been a wonderful semester of festivals. And we ask on this holy day, we ask him to let this truth shine in our hearts and in our lives. That as God reveals himself to us by showing mercy to sinners, so we may show that we are his children by showing mercy to others. As God blessed us instead of cursing us, so we pray that God would teach us to bless those who do us wrong, as his children should. As God forgives us instead of condemning us, so let us forgive with hearts full of the Holy Spirit who forgives us every day in our baptism. Then we will sing every day 
this song that the church teaches us to sing. Blessed be the Holy Trinity and the undivided unity. Let us give glory to him. Why? Because he has shown mercy unto us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.